Good morning. Welcome to Highland Community Church. We're looking today at 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. 1 John chapter 2, 28 and 29. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, as we continue in John's epistle, that your spirit guided John to write. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to understand these verses well. Not only, though, to have head knowledge, but to have heart transformation. We pray, Father, that as we think of the return of your Son, that we would be ready, prepared, that we would be focused, so that when your Son returns, he would find us doing that which you desire us to do. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. I have a question. Where were you? Where were you March 1, 1989? Now, some of you who are under 32, you were not yet born. But those who are over 32, where were you on March 1st, 1989? Now, that's kind of a head scratcher, isn't it? Maybe if I had said, where were you when the Challenger exploded? I know exactly where I was. Where were you when we had the tsunami that devastated Indonesia? I know exactly where I was. Where were you when Ronald Reagan was shot? I remember that very well. Some of you are older than me, and I would say, where were you when John... Kennedy was shot and you would know. But I'm not asking that. I'm asking where were you on March 1st, 1989? That's a question that was asked by Time Magazine a few weeks after that event. So what happened on March 1st, 1989? Well, an asteroid, a rock in space that was a half a mile wide, came within 63,000 miles of our planet. That was the closest that a large asteroid had been to our planet in many, many, many decades. We are told that this half-mile-long asteroid, traveling at 85,000 miles per hour, had it hit our planet, would have hit with the force of several thousand World War II-era atomic bombs. It would have cost the lives of millions, maybe billions of people. Dr. Alan Harris at the Propulsion Center in Pasadena, California, he was asked, hey, could we have stopped an asteroid? What if we really saw that it was going to hit the planet? It was 63,000 miles away. But what if it was really going to hit the planet? Could we have stopped it? Dr. Alan Harris said, well, we could have sent a nuclear missile at it, and that could have vaporized it. That sounds good to me. But he said, also, if we hit it with a nuclear weapon, it might have just exploded it, and then it would be more like a shotgun hitting us with pellets all over the place. That doesn't sound very good. So Time Magazine asked him again, well, what would you suggest we do? Now, this is a man who believes 
that inevitably an asteroid is going to hit the earth, probably decades, maybe centuries from now, but he believes it's going to happen. And so he was asked, what should we do to prepare for that event? And Dr. Alan Harris said, I think the most sensible thing to do is ignore it. Do nothing. And I don't know how that hits you, but that doesn't really set well with me. We know an event could happen according to this scholar. At least he believes it. I really don't. I think God's in control, but he believes it. And the him, in his view, the most sensible thing to do is ignore it. It makes no sense to me. As I think about this, I, I think about an account that comes out of Chicago from several decades earlier. It was a man who wanted to visit a bar that was called the Gates of Hell. He was on the streets. He was a little lost, wasn't sure where the bar was. Stopped a bystander, a local, and said, hey, do you know where the gates of hell are or is? And the guy said, oh, yeah, that's easy. What you do is you go down this street, past Calvary Church, and go on to the gates of hell. So listen to the instructions. Go past Calvary and arrive at hell. That doesn't make sense, not for we who believe in Christ. That is nonsensical. It's ignoring the facts that Jesus is coming, that Jesus paid the penalty of sin, which is death. He conquered death and rose on the third day and offers eternal life to all of us who by faith would believe in Christ. The only sensible thing is to prepare I think the only sensible thing, if we really believed an asteroid is going to hit, is prepare. The only sensible thing, if we really believe that Jesus is going to return, is to prepare. And John agrees. In fact, John is going to talk about preparing as a believer in Christ. One who has already accepted Christ. Prepare because John says Jesus is coming. Jesus is returning. It's going to be at any moment. It might be today, it might be tomorrow, are you ready? It might be next week, but Jesus is coming. I think if John were here, he might say something like this. Jeff, let's suppose that you know that Jesus is coming next week. What is it going to do to how you live? Well, I think it's going to impact how I live. What if you had that insider information? Now, this is hypothetical. We don't know when Jesus is coming. No one knows except the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Nobody knows. But what happens if you did know? You had some inside information. He's coming in seven days. If you're married, would you be kinder to your spouse? I bet you would. I bet many of you already are well done. If you're single, would you guard your life and your morality well? Many of you are well done. If you're working, would you work heartily under the Lord but not be a workaholic? You would work well but not be dedicated to an out-of-balance life. Many of you do that well. Good job. Would you make sure that your morals, your ethics line up with the Lord? As I know many of you do. 
Would you make sure that you're not engrossed with materialism and always thinking about it bigger and better <coughs> and the next thing? I'm sure that you would. Would you make church and Bible study and prayer a priority as I know many of you do? I'm sure you and I would. If we really believed that Jesus could come at any moment, the only sensible thing is to be prepared, not ho-hum Christianity, not yawning in the face of God, but being prepared because the King, King Jesus, is coming. Let me pick up in 1 John chapter 2. Let me read verses 28 and 29. And now, little children. Again, John says that. He's an octogenarian. He thinks of all of us as younger. So, hey, just read it the way it is. Hey, younger person. That kind of works for me. Abide in him. Abide in Jesus. So that when he, Jesus, appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. I think John is rather clear, isn't he? He says, abide. Make sure that you, I, are prepared. Jesus is coming. We use the word imminent. It means any moment. Maybe today, are we prepared? Maybe tomorrow, are we ready? Maybe a thousand years from now, for remember, for the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. He is not bound by time like we are, but he's coming. Are you, am I, are we ready? Are we living out the fruit of God's spirit within us? Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love. Think about that. Matthew 22 what are the two greatest commandments? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is likened unto the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. Love joy. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Peace. Are we covered with the peace that surpasses all understanding to guard our heart and mind in Christ Jesus? Patience. Lord, give me the patience of Job. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. The word actually comes from a word root for Christ. We ought to be like Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Goodness and gentleness is how we interact with one another. Faithfulness and self-control is when we say no to sin and yes to the Lord. And we ask God to empower us to turn from sin. That's part of abiding. We don't want ho-hum Christianity. We don't want to yawn in the face of God. We want to be ready when Jesus returns at any moment, alive and ready. Last week, we learned that we're living in a day of the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist is morality and ethics that do not square with the word of God. We're living in a day, and the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more antichrist, lesser antichrist, that will permeate our land. And then some will come from within the church, false teachers and false prophets, 
People who start squarely with the word of God, but over time they begin to teach less of the word of God and and more of man's theology. And then finally, when we get to the end times, as a pre-trib, pre-millennialist, I believe that we're in the church age and then Jesus will come and he will remove the church, rapture the church, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Then we'll go into seven years of tribulation from Revelation 6 to 19. That's where we'll have the seals, the bulls and the trumpets, 21 judgments from God. It will be a horrific time. And during that time, a human will be Satanized, will be demonized, a human will become the man of lawlessness, the antichrist, the beast, the little horn, all the same individual. And he will represent Satan to the nations. And it will be a horrific time. And at the end of that, Jesus will come. And he will bind Satan and will go into a literal thousand year reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom. And at the end of that, Satan will be released And he will garner an army like the sand on the sea. And they will be no match for Christ. Christ will win that final battle. And we will go into the new heavens and the new earth. And all of that is precipitated by that moment when Jesus returns. That any moment, imminent moment of the return of Christ. We call it the coming of Christ. And as we're waiting for that day, John has a word for us, abide. Abide in Christ. Be ready for Christ. He's coming. The king is coming. Abide in Christ. Now, interestingly enough, at least to me, in the New Testament, there are three words that really talk about Jesus' return. Three main words. So I want to look at them. Two are actually in this text. The first word is apocalypsis. We recognize the word apocalypse. Apocalypse to us, if we've gone to the movies, is this horrible scene. Lots of wars and rumors of wars and tribulations. And maybe the the seas come in where the tsunami and earthquakes split the ground and volcanoes erupt and there's all sorts of battles and nuclear weapons and and that's how we envision the apocalypse. That's not far from what we read in Revelation and also from Matthew 24 and 25. But this word apocalypse doesn't really refer to that cataclysmic event. It actually means unveiling. The apocalypse is the unveiling of Christ. And when Christ appears to us, we're going to be stunned. The utter beauty, the majesty, the glory, the unfathomable wisdom, it will all be in front of us. I know what we often say. We often say things like this. When I get to heaven and I see Jesus, I'm going to ask him, I've said that too, but I doubt it. I think we're going to be having to push up our chin because this Jesus is going to be so spectacular. He's a lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a lamb of God. I think back to my childhood. My mom found a book. It was a book with some probably fairly salty language. And she knew it belonged to one of her three kids. I'll tell you who it did not belong to, me. 
I'm the innocent one. It's one of my sisters. I know that because it wasn't mine. But nobody fessed up. And so for years, my mom would say, when I get to heaven, and I'm going to beat you guys there, the first question I'm going to ask is, who owned that book? And I would always say, yeah, go for it, mama. Because I knew it wasn't mine. One of my naughty sisters, of course. But I don't think that's what my mom's really going to do. I think she is going to be so amazed at the unveiling of Christ that it would just take her, our breath away. Jesus is coming. And the text says that we ought to be ready. We don't want to have to shamefully pull back because he is here. Well, that word, apocalypse, isn't in the text, but the next two are. The second word is phania. Now, that doesn't mean much to us until I put the prefix, not in this text, but it's how it's often put in the Bible. Epiphania, epiphany. The epiphany is the visible appearing of Christ. Jesus is going to appear visibly. He's coming. We're going to see him. It'll be astounding. When Jesus returns... It's not going to be that secret event. Oh, he's coming like a thief in the night. We're not going to be ready for it. It's coming like birth pangs upon a pregnant woman. Several will be walking together and one will go and one will stay. All of that is true, but there is a part of it that will be revealed to all because it is the visible appearing of Christ. Revelation 1, 7. Let me just read that to us. It says this. Behold, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who have pierced him, the unbeliever. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So although we can't guess the day or the hour, although it's going to come on to us suddenly, it's going to be like a thief in the night or birth pangs upon a pregnant woman. When he comes, every believer will see it because we will be gathered up and we will be ushered into the presence of God on that heavenly cab cab going to the presence of the Lord. It even says those who pierce him will see him. The unbeliever will see him. Will it be all of them? The text says all. All will see Christ. And Jesus wants us to know in verse 28 that he expects us to meet him with confidence because we're ready. He does not want us to shrink from him in shame. Verse 28. He's telling us, be ready. I'm coming. I'm coming. It matters what your attitude is like. It matters what your action is like. It matters what your motive is like. It matters because I'm coming. Be ready, Jeff. Be ready. The final word that talks about the return of Christ is parousia, coming. This was used of a dignitary. If a dignitary came to your village or your town, you would prepare, right? Maybe he's going to stop in your house. Maybe you dust out the cobwebs, maybe a little fresh paint, maybe cleaning the floor. If he's coming to your house for dinner, you'll prepare a meal. 
this is the word parousia, but it isn't a dignitary. It's the dignitary. It's not just a mere king. It's the king. It's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's telling us, I'm coming. Be ready. Be awake. Be alert. I'm coming. Are you, am I, ready? Isn't this the repeat over and over again of Scripture? Let me just read a few passages. Luke 12, verse 40. You also must be ready. For the Son of Man, Jesus, is coming at an hour you do not expect. Matthew 24. Let me read verse 42. Therefore stay awake. For you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. Verse 44. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Matthew 25, verse 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Revelation 16, 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he might not go about naked and be seen exposed. Jesus is coming. He's going to appear. He's going to be visible. The apocalypsis. It's going to be epiphany, the unveiling of Christ. By the way, that word phanir, epiphany, is never used of the Father. It's never used of the Spirit. Only used of Jesus because only Jesus comes down to earth and appears visibly bodily to us. And he's coming. And we've got to ask ourselves, are we ready? Watching porn or sleeping with someone who is not our spouse, not ready. Guarding our hearts and strengthening our marriage, ready. Being a materialist and being tight with what God has entrusted to us, not ready. Being generous with what God has given, ready. Using all of our time to advance ourselves, not ready. Investing in kingdom pursuits. Ready. Driven by covetousness. Not ready. Being satisfied in Christ. Ready. Making the things of God secondary, tertiary. Not ready. Making the things of God primary. Ready. Embracing the ethics and the moral of the world. Not ready. Scouring scripture and learning God's ethic and God's moral. Ready. Wasting one's life. Not ready. Investing one's life. Ready. Jeff, wake up. Jeff, be ready. Jeff, be alert. The king is coming. I'm called to be ready. In this regard, I think of President Dwight Eisenhower, General Eisenhower. He was the President of the United States from 1953 to 1961. He was the 34th President. And he was a rather unassuming, even in some ways quiet man. One time as he was president, he was in Colorado and he heard about a young boy. He was six years old and the boy had contracted cancer and it said that his dream was to meet the president. 
And so Dwight Eisenhower decided to go meet this boy. He didn't call the press. He didn't send an entourage. He just got in his car with his driver and he showed up at the house unannounced, walked up on the porch, knocked on the door. It was a Saturday. The father of the boy opened the door and you can imagine how speechless he was. There he was with a 24-hour shadow, a wrinkled t-shirt, holy jeans, and the president of the United States is standing on his porch looking to be invited into a house that's not been picked up. Later on, when talking to one of the CBS or ABC or NBC networks, that father said, man, what a way to meet the president. And I'm not trying to put down the president. I'm not. I mean, Ike is a two-term president. He's one of nine five-star generals in American history. He was the leader of the Allies. By most stretches of any imagination, he was a great man. But that's the word. He's a man, a mere man. But the king is coming, the king of glory, the king of kings, the lord of lords. He's warned us, stay awake, be alert, be ready. I'm coming, be on point, be on fire. Spend yourself for kingdom pursuits. I am coming. In fact, what does he say in today's text? Let me read verse 29 again. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The principle here is like father, like daughter, like father, like son, if you know that God is righteous, oh my, we know that. Then the text doesn't say you ought to be righteous yourself or you should be righteous or it'd be good if you are righteous. It actually says, if you know that he is righteous, be righteous yourself. That's the meaning of the text. It's a command for you and I to be righteous, to be ready, to be awake, to be alert. How do we do this? Well, I don't think we can do it on our own. I think of Ephesians 5, 18. Do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be ye filled, the verb plerao, be ye filled by God's spirit. And that verb is in the present tense, which means it's not a one-time filling. It's not talking about the moment in which I come to Christ, the Holy Spirit enters me. That's true. He's a down payment guaranteeing my future inheritance. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that's true. But Ephesians 5, 18 is talking about the daily empowerment, the hourly empowerment to turn from temptation, to turn from sin and towards the Lord. And it's in the iterative, the present tense, I need this empowerment over and over and over again all day long. It's in the passive which means I'm really not capable of turning from sin on my own. Oh, I can grit my teeth and with my white knuckles, I can say no to sin for a little while, but, but then the old nature rears its ugly head and I give in. And so I've got to ask God's Spirit over and over again to empower me to turn from sin, to give me His strength 
to say yes to Jesus, yes to being ready, and no to Satan, and no to yawning in the face of God. It's in the present passive imperative. It's actually a command. I'm commanded daily to ask for this empowerment. Lord, empower me today to turn from sin and towards righteousness. Empower me today to have the right attitude, the right thought, the right motive. Empower me today to avoid what you would say no to and embrace what you would say yes to. That's the fulfillment of that text that we ought to pray on a regular basis. And second, to be ready, we need to keep short accounts. Short accounts with the Lord. Psalm 51, 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I need to keep short accounts. And what happens when I do? Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgressions from me. And if I keep short accounts, and I'm empowered by God's Spirit, when he returns, I'm going to be awake, I'm going to be alert, I'm going to be ready, I'm not going to have to shy back, but with confidence, I'll say, here I am, Jesus. I've been waiting for you. And I've got, I don't have any questions you are beyond what I could ever imagine. You are the Christ. Let's be ready for that Christ, that Savior, that Redeemer. Let's pray. Father God, uh, there are moments in our lives where we feel ready and many times when we feel inadequate, like we would shrink back because of what we're thinking or what we're doing or not doing or the motives or thoughts that go through our minds. Father, cleanse us. Blot out our iniquities. Wash us, scrub us clean. Empower us by your Spirit to say yes to truth, yes to righteousness, yes to you. Allow us to be more ready today than yesterday, more ready tomorrow than today. Allow us, Father, to look forward to the return of your Son, to be awake, to be alert, to be ready. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.